The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning we dealt with chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Job, which contain Eliphaz, the Temanite's first argument, his first rebuke, if you will, of Job. Uh, we talked about his approach, which was very harsh and judgmental. Not as harsh and judgmental as Bildad and Zophar will be, but, uh, but his approach was not to emphasize the pity and show pity and be uh, loving and merciful to him, but rather to be um, accusing and, and judgmental. Um, you may recall that his argument was based on his own experience, what he saw in the world. And, you know, whenever we start basing our positions on what we've seen, we better be careful. Now, granted, they didn't have the whole scripture that we have, the whole word of God. In fact, they had the dubious honor, as I said this morning, of being a part of the very first book of the Bible, <laughs> the very first inspired story, the very first inspired account in the word of God. And he, he kept on promoting himself as the ultimate arbiter of what was happening to Job. Now, as we said already, that when the Lord is chastening us, if the Lord indeed is doing something in our lives, and he does from time to time suffer trials to come upon us and suffer tribulations to occur to us, and, and, and oftentimes for chastening's sake, sometimes for chastening's sake, Sometimes uh, there's other reasons for it, but be that as it may, uh, whenever we become, we think we're the ultimate arbiter of what's happening in someone else's life, then we've got problems. And that's what happened with Eliphaz. He said, Job, I know what's happening to you because I've seen it happen. And this is the truth that, that the, the principle of sowing and reaping is not just a general principle, it's a law. And that's what's happening in your life. You've got some unconfessed secret sin that's the cause of all the troubles you're facing, and in fact, the cause of all the troubles that your children are facing. What a, what a horrible accusation to a man who's lost 10 of his children. It's terrible to think. And, and, and again, Eliphaz, without the benefit of Scripture, is basing his, his whole argument on the fact that he has seen this before, and this is the way it is. In verse 7 of chapter 5, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. In other words, whatever, there's no, he said in the verse before, it doesn't just come out of nothing. There's a reason you're having these sufferings and you need to make it right with God. His, his appeal to Job was get right with God. That's what we hear in the world today. Get right with God, especially in the prosperity gospel. If you'll just get right with God, everything will work out. <laughs> Your whole, it'll be smooth sailing from here on out. If you'll just have faith enough, if you'll just live right enough and righteously enough, everything will fall into place. Now, granted, no doubt, it's like we've said before, in this, in this book of Job, there's a lot of true teaching that's misapplied. That's a true principle, the principle of sowing and reaping, as we said this morning. It's true. In general, you reap what you sow, but there's also situations where the wicked prosper and the, and the righteous are afflicted, and that, that doesn't bear out. You know, a principle is not a law. You know, if God, the law of gravity, unless God suspends it, it always works. <laughs> You're always going to fall when you step off a high building. 
Okay, now the principle of sowing and reaping is a general principle, like in the book of Proverbs it talks about it very often, but it, it's not a, one of those things that every single time it works out that way, but that's what Eliphaz thought. That's what he thought. And ultimately, he was a miserable comforter to Job. And he ended up his talk with him saying, Job, you ought to be enjoying this. You ought to be happy about this. Happy is the man whom God corrected. Now, there's some truth to that. In fact, it's quoted by Paul. But here again, Eliphaz is trying to tell Job, this is a problem you've brought on yourself. So in chapter 6 and 7 tonight, I want us to look at Job's first answer, his answer to Eliphaz. And if I could title this message, I would title it from chapter 7 and verse 16, I would not live always. I want you to remember where Job is. Job has lost his children. He's lost his farm. He's lost his goods. He's lost his cattle. He's lost everything that was dear to him in this life that he had worked for, that he loved, and now he's even lost his health. And it's, it's, you've been there. I've been there where it just seems like one thing after another after another keeps piling on constantly. And you think, Lord, have you forsaken me? And that's where, that's where Job is. And remember the three principles, the three themes of Job that we've been talking about, the patience of Job, the pride of God as to Job, and then the pride of Job as to his self-righteousness and that of his friends. You see, Job's not perfect in this. He's perfect according to God in the sense that he's mature, fully grown. But he's not sinlessly perfect. And that's part of, of this theme in here, as you're going to see, and we're going to see some tonight, how Job has some pride going on here and apparently it infected the entire worship of that day his friends certainly were self-righteous and ultimately though the theme that's the most precious to us is pity James chapter 5 and verse 11 said you have seen you have heard of the patience of Job and you have seen the end of the Lord that he is very pitiful and of tender mercies if you get if you come away from Job with any idea of God other than he is pitiful and of tender mercies, you've missed the point of Job. So let's talk about now Job's answer to Eliphaz's accusations. Job begins by appealing to his friends for sympathy, but he ends up appealing to God for mercy in these two chapters. That song we just sang encapsulates the whole of Job's desire. I don't want to live any longer. He said, I would not live always. And in fact, he's going to cry out to God, I don't want to live any longer. He's already told us that. We've already seen that in chapter 3. He's saying, I wish I'd never been born, and I wish if I had, if I, since I was born, I wish I'd died as a child, and now, Lord, since I didn't do that, I wish you'd just take me on out of here. Job is really hurting. So in chapter 6, he begins to respond to this by appealing to his friends. And in the first 13 verses of this chapter, he's essentially saying to his friends after Eliphaz, and by, by the way, you notice that Eliphaz is talking, but clearly we're going to see his, that Bildad and Zophar also agree with him. They're, they're probably standing over there amening him as he's talking. Amen, that's right. Or he, they're nodding their heads at the very least. It's clear to Job that his friends have the wrong attitude about what's going on. And Job answered and said in verse uh, uh, verse 1 there of chapter 6, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed and my calamity laid in the balances together, for now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words are swallowed up. Job is saying to them, My suffering is too heavy for me. 
What I'm bearing, I can't bear. What The load that I have is too heavy. Uh, it's heavier than you realize. He said, verse 3, it was heavier than the sands of the seas. And bitterness is overwhelming me. Verse 4, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. It is so easy in the crucible of suffering, to start blaming God for what's happening to you. But we know the story here. God's not doing this to him. God is not afflicting Job. Yes, God is, is removed the hedge to some extent, but it's the devil, it's Satan that's after Job. You notice even Job is buying into his friend's way of thinking. That God is out to get him. The arrows of the Almighty are within me. Aren't, isn't it so easy to think that? Isn't it so easy to, to fall into that trap and say, God, what are you doing to me? Why are you doing this, Lord? Why are you picking on me? And he goes on to say, verses 5 and 6 and 7 here, he says, Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass, or loweth the ox over his father, a fodder? In other words, you think I'm just out here running my mouth? If if I had, you know, when a when a donkey has grass, he doesn't bray. When a when a ox has fodder, he doesn't low. There's a reason I'm calling out. There's a reason I'm crying out in my pain. This is heavy. It's too heavy. It's too bitter for me. Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? By the way, I hate whites of eggs. <laughs> you know, I get this right here. There's no taste in it. If I'm going to eat an egg yeah, that, that has the egg white on it, I have to salt it down. Think about an unsalted white of an egg. He says, the meat that's not salted is unsavory. The things that my soul refused to touch are as my sorrowful Meat. In other words, my life is like tasteless meat. It, it's just, I'm just going through the motions now. Nothing, nothing is enticing to me. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't look good. I'm not, I'm not enjoying anything in life. It's, my life is a burden to me. Verses 8 down through uh, verse 13, he says, Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. <laughs> he says, I wish God would kill me. Then, then would I have yet comfort. Yeah, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare. I've not concealed the words of the Holy Ghost, the Holy One. What is my strength that I should hope? And what is mine end that I should prolong my life? I have no basis to hope for anything in this life. All my hope is gone. Everything that has happened to me, everything that I see has fallen out to my detriment. You know, I want to stop again and just remind us what we saw this morning and what we, what we need to remember that let's, let's cut Job a, a little slack and even his friends a little slack. As I said, this book, according to the historians, is the first book of the scripture that was written. Even the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy had not been written yet. And, and, and they didn't have access to the Scriptures. They didn't have access to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for example. You know, Paul went through some terrible struggles. Paul went through some difficult times that would brought lesser men down and would definitely bring me down. But in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, 
Paul says, for which he's talking about all the problems he has. For, what, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Job's outward man is perishing. He sees no hope for himself. And, he, and then Paul, who had been whipped four times, who had suffered shipwreck, who had been even, uh, according to what I understand the scripture to teach, he had even lost his life at one point. He had, he had had a sort of out-of-body experience. Paul here has suffered so many things, and yet he says it's our light affliction. Light affliction. I'm telling you something. If I ever got whipped 39 times once, just one time, they took a whip to me for 39 lashes. I'd never forget that. And I'd be in what they call post-traumatic stress disorder. I'd have PTSD for the rest of my life because of what I experienced there. Paul says it's light affliction. He said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How in the world, Paul, can you keep that kind of an attitude? This is how. He's looking at something different than what's going on around him. Why we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, now do you, does this ring a bell? Didn't we start off talking about the situation Job could see, but then saw that there was a situation Job could not see? Job could see some things. He could see the worship service that he was in, but he couldn't see God and Satan there observing this worship service that Job was in and talking to each other. Job could see the loss of his children. Job could see the loss of his things, his material things. Job could even feel the loss of his health. But he's, he can't see what God's doing. And beloved, Paul says there's some things God's doing. Remember this. You don't have to, God is not some arbitrary, manipulative God, little g God, like Zeus or, or Jupiter or some of those, those pantheon of, of gods that the Greeks and the Romans had. They were all time, they were all time playing tricks on men. They were coming down trying to trip them up, trying to cause them problems. They, they rejoiced today. Our God is not like that. Our God is for us. Our God is on our side. Job's God was on his side. He wasn't the one afflicting him. The devil was. You remember when the devil tried to get God to? He said, God, if, you'll just, if you, God, will just touch him, then all these, he'll curse you to your face. And all these blessings, take them away, God. You know what God did? He didn't take the bait. He said, all right, Satan, everything he's got is in your hands. You know why that is? Because it's not the nature of God to afflict his children. Yes, he chastens. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about in the kind of affliction that Job is experiencing here. It's not God's nature to do it, but it is the devil's. Paul knows this. Paul says there's a situation we can see, and that situation will always get us down. But if we'll keep our eyes on the things which are not seen, then our spirit will grow within us. And we'll be able to handle these things that seem like great afflictions, and they will become but light afflictions in our minds he says my situation is hopeless my situation gives me no reason for any joy whatsoever my suffering is too heavy for me and then beginning in verse 14 listen to this in Job chapter uh, 6 to him that is afflicted pity should be showed 
from his friend, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. They didn't pity him. They didn't try to meet his needs. And Job is saying, your words are of little comfort to me. Not only is my suffering too heavy for me, your words are not helping me. Your words are of little comfort to me. And I want to say to you that the key to comforting anyone, the key to comforting your friend or your family who is suffering is that pity should be showed. To him that is afflicted, and that word literally means melts, to him that is melting under the pressure, pity should be showed from his friend. Paul says this, he said we're to speak the truth in love. I've said this before, and I want to say it again. This is not a biblical quote, but it's a biblical principle. I've heard motivational speakers use this before. It's not a biblical quote, but it's a biblical principle. I don't care how much knowledge I have, how much truth I can proclaim. If I don't show it and proclaim it in love and show how much I care about the people I'm preaching to, the people I'm sharing with, then they're not going to accept it or be interested in it. In other words, I've heard it put like this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. A lot of the stuff they're telling Job is true. As I said, you've got to be careful in rightly dividing the book of Job because there's a lot of truth in Job, but it's misapplied in most cases until we get down to God when he applies it just exactly right. You've got to filter it through who's speaking. In this case, uh, this morning, Eliphaz was speaking. In these two chapters, Job is speaking. And Job has a lot of truth. He says a lot of things that are accurate, but he misunderstands how they're to be applied. But here they are supposed to be showing him pity. You know, the first thing you need to show a friend who's suffering is not, well, let me, let me tell you all the answers. I, I've got everything you need to know right here. Let me, let's go into a didactic dis, uh, discussion of all the truths of God's Word. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't get you very far, does it? There's a lot of times when I'm in the depths of sorrow, I'm not all that interested in, in hearing all the truths that you know, but I'm so interested in your pity. I'm so interested in your empathy, your sympathy, your love. And that's sometimes all we need. These, these friends would have been a lot better off and it would be a much different book if they had just sat there in silence and not started talking. He says, your words are not comforting me. In verses 15 down through 21, we won't read them all, but notice in the first part it says, my brethren have dealt deceitfully as a brook, and as the stream of brooks they pass away, which are blackish by reason of ice, and wherein the snow is hid. And he goes on to say they vanish when it gets hot. In other words, my friends, what you're doing, you're like a dry creek to me. I had high hopes, verse 19, the troops of Tema looked, the companies of Sheba waited for them, waited for these waters, but verse 20, they were confounded because they had hoped. They came hither and were ashamed. In other words, the water was all dried up. There's nothing in what you're telling me that's helping me at all. You're like a dry creek. I had high hopes that you might be able to help me, but there's nothing there. Your words are of little comfort to me. And then beginning in verse 22, down through the end of that chapter, he says, I need you. I need you to help me. You know, my suffering's too heavy for me. What you're telling me is not helping me. I need you to help me. Look at, look at verse 22. Did I say bring unto me or give a reward to me of your substance? In other words, I don't want your stuff. Or deliver me from the enemy's hand or redeem me from the hand of iniquity. Verse 24, here's what I need. First of all, I need you to teach me. 
Teach me, and I will hold my tongue, and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. In other words, show me what's wrong. Teach me. You're accusing me with no knowledge. You're, you're leaping to conclusions, and you're trying to tell me, all oh, this is my fault. Show me. Tell me. You've said some true, true things. Verse 25, how forcible are right words. But what doth your arguing reprove? In other words, you're telling me some things that I know are true. The principle of sowing and reaping, for instance, all that's true. But, but you're, not, you're not, what good are they with the attitude you have? What good are they without the knowledge that you need? And then look at verse 28. He says, now therefore be content. Look upon me. Look upon me, for it's evident unto you if I lie. You know what he's saying? He's saying, basically, stop talking <laughs> and just sit down with me and look at me. You'll know if I lie. You can tell when I talk. Just, just look upon me. In other words, I need pity instead of condemnation. I need your presence, but I don't need all this fancy talking you're trying to do. Because all these truths are not helping me at all. They may be true, but you've leaped to the wrong conclusion. We saw this morning where Eliphaz was assuming that Job is the cause of all of his own suffering. And then in verses 29 and 30, he appeals to them to reconsider their words and to understand. Look at, look at verse 29. Return, I pray you. Let it not be iniquity. Yea, return again. My righteousness is in it. Is there not iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? What he's saying here is essentially that my righteousness is, is, is at stake here. My righteousness is caught up in this. You're accusing me of being unrighteous. He said, return, let it not be iniquity. Don't do iniquity. He said, return again. My righteousness is in this. My, my, in this matter, literally in this matter, my righteousness is all caught up in it. And you're accusing me of being unrighteous. And I need, I need your pity. Now, now, just quickly, let me say this. Because we're not really at the point where I want to talk a lot about Job's pride yet. Remember we said pride was one of the themes here, though? We're beginning to see the seeds of pride and self-righteousness with Job. He's saying, I'm righteous. I'm not doing anything wrong. Is there iniquity in my tongue? Can't my taste discern? Can't I figure out if something is wrong or not or perverse? Job is going to start defending himself soon, and he's going to get into a little bit of anger. He's going to get a little bit angry about the things that are happening to him because he's going he's to sort of promote himself, and he buys into their way of thinking. But we'll come back to that, Lord willing, down the road. Now, in chapter 7, after Job appeals to his friends in chapter 6, the first part of chapter 7, he appeals to the vanity of life, the emptiness of life. And in verses 1 through 5, Job is saying life is so futile. Life is so empty. Look at verse 1. Is there not an appointed time to man upon earth? Are not his days also like the days of an hireling? Now let me stop right here and say this. This is not Job taking some absolute or fatalistic approach, saying, oh, well, there's an appointed time and I can't escape it. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's set from, from the beginning to the end. Uh, there's an appointed day for death. Now, we've, we've talked about this before, but let me say this. I understand from God's perspective, he knows when we're going to die. He knows that. There's no doubt. 
He knows what's going to happen in the next minute, in the next hour. Does that make God the cause of it? No, no. Just because you know something doesn't mean you cause it. God knows everything we do. He knew that David was going to commit adultery with Bathsheba. Does that make God the author of his sin? Absolutely not. Job here is not talking about there being an appointed day for death. Over in Hebrews 9.27, you'll notice he says in there, he said, as it is appointed unto men once to die, not a man, but men once to die. Men die once in this life. But notice here, this, this word appointed time literally means, in, in the center column here, it literally means a warfare, a warfare. Is there not an appointed time? In other words, life is hard. The time of my life, the time that man is upon the earth, it's like a draftee in a war. There's a, there's a warfare going on. And notice as we keep reading, as a servant earnestly desireth the shadow, and as a hireling looketh for the reward of his work, so am I made to possess months of vanity and wearisome nights are appointed unto me. In other words, life is futile. Life is empty. Life is full of months of vanity. Vanity means emptiness. And like a draftee or a, in a war or a hireling in work, I'm tired of all the pointless labor of life. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, said the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. Job is saying life is hard. I think we can identify with that, can we not? Life is hard. Life is tough. It's full of disappointments. And notice in verses 4 through 7 here, he said, When I lie down, I say, When shall I rise and the night be gone? And I'm full of tossings to and fro until the dawning of the day. My flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. Oh, Job's in bad shape. You know, there's a place over in the book of Deuteronomy where God said that if you forsake him, that there is a legitimate place where, uh, where, the, where the, the blessings will be taken away and the cursings will occur. He told the children of Israel, if you forsake his law, he said, you're going to say, uh, if, you, if you keep his law, rather, if you keep his law, you'll, you'll be blessed when you lie down, blessed when you rise. But then if you don't keep his law, you'll be cursed when you lie down, cursed when you arise. When you're morning, when you're at night, you'll say, would God it were morning. When it's morning, you'll say, would God it was night. You ever been there? <laughs> you ever been there? I've been there under the chastening of the Lord where I, I could lay down at night and wish it was morning. And when I woke up in the morning, I wished it was night where I could lay down again. I never was satisfied. But you know what? I've also been there when it wasn't the chastening of God. I've also been there when it was like Job. And there was just problems in life. And I was not, I was, I was struggling. And I was sick at heart. And I was not satisfied no matter what happened. Job is not satisfied no matter what happened. When I lie down, I wish it was morning. And he said, my flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. Now, I've been sick before, but I've never been this sick. That's, that's gross. And it's also so burdensome when it happens to you. Look at verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. <laughs> Here he's saying not only is life futile, now he starts talking about the fact that life is short. Life is futile, it's vanity, and life is short. I, I, I looked it up because we don't, we don't really deal with weaver's shuttles anymore. Uh, maybe some of you worked in factories where they use them. But essentially, a shuttle is what carries the yarn back and forth 
in a loom. And that loom, as you're constantly pushing it and pulling it, it's got strings of yarn, strings of twine here. And then that, that shuttle goes back and forth. And to make it work right, it's just, you know, you're constantly pushing and pulling and pushing and pulling, sending that shuttle under, sending that shuttle back, sending that shuttle back and back and forth constantly. And it's just a wearisome thing to watch. Ultimately, it's, I can't imagine doing that all day. And weavers do that, and it's a constant thing. And, he said, and it's fast, it's swift. And before you know it, the, the yarn is gone. The cloth is created and it's finished. And that's what he's saying. My days are going by like that. We might put it in terms like this today. We might say, my life is like an hourglass. And you know, when you turn that hourglass over, at first, it looks like the sand's just trickling through. You young folks, keep this in mind. I don't mean to discourage you, okay? But right now, you know, when I was 10 or 11 years old, you know, Christmas was a great day. And then the day after Christmas was terrible because I realized I had a whole year before Christmas is going to roll around again. And it seemed like it crawled. It seemed like it would never get here. You know what I said to Sherry just the other day? I can't believe that Christmas is almost already here again. It seemed like just yesterday. I, you young folks, when you're young, you think differently about time than you do when you get older. That sand in the hourglass seems to be trickling out, but the lower it gets, it seems to be flying out of there. The older I get, the faster time flies and that's what he's saying my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and they're spent without hope it's bad enough that they're fast but i don't have any hope in these days oh remember that my life is wind mine eye shall no more see good compares his life to the wind and that's biblical that's biblical it's in the bible here but it's also in the Bible elsewhere. James 4.14 says, What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. It's just a vapor. It's not even really smoke. Smoke is more substantive than a vapor. A vapor is just like a little something that comes off the heat of a, of a kettle or the heat of a pot. And next thing you know, that water vapor is just gone. It's dissipated. Life is so short. And verses 8 through 10 just tell us pretty much that he's, he's talking about the grave. He says, The eye of him that has seen me shall see me no more. Verse 9, As a cloud is consumed and vanisheth away, so he that goeth down into the grave shall come up no more. Verse 10, He shall no more return to his house, neither shall his place know him anymore. In other words, death is coming for all of us. Death is inevitable. And once it comes... All this, these homes and, the, and the, the stuff we have, we'll never see them again and people won't see us anymore. Life, you know, it's, it's, a, it's tantamount to the saying you often hear today, life is hard and then you die. You know, and the point of that is that people are making when they say it is, it, is that it's sheer point, life is pointless. Life is hopeless. Even, as, even the best of life will end in death. You know, that's what happens when we get our vision focused on that which is going on around us, when we get our vision horizontal and we get it off the vertical, and there's no worse place for that to happen than right in the midst of suffering along the lines of what Job was suffering. He says life is futile and life is short. And then 
Beginning in verse 11 and down through the rest of the chapter, Job begins to appeal to God primarily. He says in verses 11 through 15, essentially, God, I am so burdened here. I'm so burdened. Look at verse 11. Therefore, I, he's, he's laid out his case. He said, here's the heaviness, the futility of life, the comfortlessness of his friends. And he says, therefore, will I not refrain my mouth? I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I want to stop right there and say to you, there's a sense in which this is okay. This is okay. David, when he was stuck in the cave over there with all those, all those uh, ne'er-do-wells that had come to him, all the ones that were outcasts that had come to him, he said, my soul is among lions. He was talking about all the problems he had. And then he says, basically, I laid out my case before the Lord. Did you know it's okay, it's okay to take your complaint to God? It's okay like Job in the midst of it. I've had those days. I've had those days not too long ago, a day when I felt like all I could do was complain to the Lord. And I don't mean complain and murmur against Him, but complain to Him. Lay out my complaint, my situation. God, this is more than I can bear. This is more than I can handle. I need you to help me. Let me, let me take the book of my suffering and the book of my problems and let me turn it around to you and let you and me go through it together. There's, that's okay. He tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace because we'll find grace to help in time of need. There's a sense in which this is okay, but what Job is doing here, I'm afraid, is he's more complaining than he is laying out his complaint to, the, to God. He says, I'm going to complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or a whale that thou settest to watch over me? When I say my bed shall comfort me, my couch shall ease my complaint, then thou scarest me with dreams and terrifiest me through visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my life. See, he's partly talking to his friends still here. He's saying to God, I'm not holding back, God. I'm speaking of the sea. He starts talking about the sea and the whale. The sea is constantly roiling, and God has set the boundaries to where it can come to and no further. The whale is a creature of legend to them. Even though it's a real creature, it was terrifying, and you must guard against it. He's saying, am I like that? Am I, am I just in the depths of the sea, and there's no hope for me? I'm going to drown in my sorrows? And then he says, God... My friends are killing me. <laughs> he says, you scare, you're scared. they're scaring me with dreams. In verse 15, <laughs> I love this. He says, my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my life. In other words, just kill me if I've got to listen to them anymore. <laughs> I'm tired. Of, have you ever, you ever been there? You ever said, you know, somebody just keeps running their mouth and keeps, you know, interfering in your problems and, and not giving you any hope, and you finally say, man, just shoot me. <laughs> just shoot me. If he's going to keep talking, just kill me. And then he begins to say, God, he begins to say that very thing. In verse 16, he says, God, I need you to take my life. I loathe it. I would not live always. Let me alone. For my days are vanity. That's a low point in someone's life, isn't it? Job is at a low point in life. I loathe it. I loathe what's happening to me. I hate it. You know, it might be the kin to us saying, I hate it. With all the passion that he can muster. 
I would not live always. That's sort of the theme of tonight's message. Job has gotten so down in despair that he wants to die. And you know, who can, who can blame him? Who could blame him for where he's at? Who could blame Job for, all the, for wanting to die because of all the loss he's experienced? Who could blame Job for wanting to die for the health that he's lost? And the struggle, I mean, I can't imagine. It's not just that he's laid up in bed with the flu. He's having to scrape his body with pottery shards in order to keep it from getting infected because he's got these boils all over himself. He's in a position where nobody would want to even see him. When his friends came to see him, they were speechless. They saw him afar off. He didn't even look like himself. Oh, what a terrible state to be in. Who could blame Job for this? And we talked this morning about suicide just a little bit. And we know that committing suicide, the way you leave this world, doesn't affect where you end up. I know the world teaches that if you kill yourself, then you go to hell. We know that children of God will not go to hell, no matter what happens. But we also saw and are quick to point out that suicide is not the answer. Killing yourself is not the answer. You know why? Because God knows more than you do about your life. You think your life is over? You think it's ended right here? You think that's all there is to it? Job, it looks that way. For Job, it looks like his life is over. It looks like there's nothing to live for. Let me ask you this. What do we think of when we get into the depths of suffering? Even the Apostle James pointed it out. You've heard of the patience of Job. What if God had killed him? What if he had taken his own life? We'd be talking about somebody else. See, Job is our standard besides Christ, of course. Christ is the ultimate standard. But Job is our standard in patient suffering. You've heard of the patience of Job. Even though Job wanted to be killed, he wanted his life to end. He didn't take it and, he, and God did not causes life to end, and now we look to Job as our standard. i never forget, and I've used this already in a prior message, but I want to repeat it. My grandmother, McCool, last two or three years of her life, she was miserable. All she could do was sit in the chair, and pretty much Aunt Lorraine would help her up, and she, she just didn't feel like doing anything. And she, she made the statement to me one time, she said, I can't get no better, and I can't get no worse. She would have been fine for the Lord to take her. When the day came for her death, she was ready to go. She was wanting. She was longing for death. And, and she couldn't understand sometimes, I don't know why the Lord's leaving me here. She'd say that. You know why the Lord left her here? I don't know all the reasons, but I know one reason was it inspired one of her grandchildren, <laughs> me, to look to her as an example of patient suffering. You know, why did the Lord allow my dad to get in the shape he got into before he finally died. Well, you know what? I learned a lot of lessons from watching him. For dad's sake, he would have been ready to go. He would, have been, he would have been better off in his own mind, no doubt, to take his own life, although he never even talked about that. He kept 
such a positive attitude throughout the time. But listen, you may get there. You may be like Elijah. You may get down under the juniper tree and say, it's time to die. I'm ready to go. Take my life or I'm going to take my own life. Beloved, don't do that because it's not about where you end up because you're going to go there regardless of what happens here, but it's about how you serve him in the meantime. That's what we're here to do. We're to serve him, and we're not to give up until God says it's time to give up. Job said, I would not live all way, and that's the truth. I'll tell you, I'm glad to stay here right now because I want to help. I want to, I want to see my children uh, as they continue to grow and as they, their families grow. I want to help them if I can. I want to help this church. I want to help uh, past, I want to pastor this church in the best way I can. I want to help my friends and family, but I don't want to live all ways. I don't want to live always. There's going to be a time when I can lay this body down and the burdens of life will be over. That's what Job's saying here. God, take my life. He actually kind of, and we're not going to read it, but verses 17 through 19 here, it's almost a complaint that God is paying too close attention to him. He's almost saying, leave me alone, Lord. What is man that thou shouldest magnify him and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him and thou shouldest visit him every morning? It's almost gotten to the point where he's saying just, Leave me alone and let me die. In verses 20 and 21, he said, God, I need you to forgive me my faults. I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee so that I am a burden to myself? And why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. There's a sense here in which maybe Job is understanding a little bit that, hey, I have some problems too. Maybe I'm not as righteous as I need to be. Over in Psalm chapter 19, in verse 12, the psalmist David says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Let me, there are those who believe that in order to maintain your status as a child of God, at the end of every day or at some point in every day, you have to confess all your sins to God. Do you remember every sin you've committed today? I can't remember them all. There's sins that I have committed that I didn't know I was committing. I didn't intend to do it, but I have done it anyway. You know, one of the biggest sins we commit every single day is we don't serve him. We don't seek him with all our heart, mind, soul, and spirit. You know, I have to sleep sometimes. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm watching a ball game and I'm not seeking the Lord. I'm not loving him with every fiber of my being. Psalmist says, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression or from much transgression. He said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. In other words, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I can't even remember all my sins. Search me, Lord. Search me and try me and forgive me of these secret sins. There's a sense here maybe in which Job is recognizing this. All right, so bringing this to a close, what, what, what's, what's the... What's the ultimate uh, lessons that we get from these four chapters? Well, going back to Eliphaz, 
First of all, remember that Eliphaz gives us some truth, but he misapplies that truth. It is certainly true that God does some, sometimes suffer pain and tribulation to come upon us to restore us to a proper fellowship with himself. You can, you can see that over in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, when he talks about chastening. But while God sometimes permits suffering to restore sinners, all suffering is not necessarily the chastening of God. And you cannot figure out if my suffering is chastening or not. That's between me and God. When, when I was chastening my children, I didn't want any of you to interfere with me in that. So why would God want us to interfere in his chastening of his own children? So stay out of that. Now, there's a place to, and as your pastor, I'm going to tell you sometimes, if you're suffering and you're asking questions about it, I'm going to say, well, search yourself, search your heart, see, you know, talk to the Lord and see if it's the chastening of God. Maybe it is, but I'll tell you this, every time I've ever been chastened of God, I knew exactly why. He, did not, he does not blindly chasten his children no more than I blindly chastened mine. I didn't just go wailing upon them and not tell them why. <laughs> you know, they knew why. And God's a better daddy than I am. So while some suffering is, is, it comes upon us in a chastening way to restore us, all suffering is not necessarily chastening. And Eliphaz looked at the outcome and leaped to the conclusion that the cause was Job himself. Beloved, you and I can't do that with each other either. We can't do that. He says, Job must have sinned and his repentance will fix it. You know, just have enough faith, Job, and things will work out. Now, I'm sorry, but if you want that message, you can turn on Joel Osteen on Sunday mornings and he'll tell you about that. But that's not the true gospel of the grace of God. You see, they say name it and claim it. But God's telling us here that sometimes suffering is not about chastening. Sometimes suffering is coming from the devil himself or at least the world that's around us. Remember, Job is not being afflicted in the first place by God. And we're going to see that ultimately the suffering that he endures will eliminate his pride and bring him closer to God. And that maybe this is one reason God removed the hedge from him. But the ultimate cause of his suffering is the author of sin himself, that is, Satan. Thirdly, from Job's answer here, we see a very important truth. We need each other in troubles. We need each other in troubles. Let me tell you something. As your pastor, don't you ever hesitate to call me if you're having trouble. Now, I know I'm not God, and I can't always be there, but I'll do the best I can to get to you. And that's not just for me as a pastor. That's for us as to one another. I know I can call on you. I know I can, and you'll come running. And that's the way we ought to be with one another because we need each other in trouble. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You need one another in adversity. We need one another in trouble. Ecclesiastes 4 and verses 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. 
for he hath not another to help him up. Beloved, that's why we need this, this little Bethel spot that we call Zion Church. That's why we need the church of the living God. We need one another because two are better than one. Are you going to die and go to hell if you're out there on the hillsides of this, this world alone? No. You're going to be in heaven, but it's going to feel like hell. It's going to feel like the aloneness. It's going to feel like uh, suffering that you've never endured. You're going to feel terrible out there. You need one another. We need each other. This is so important. And finally, the other point we need to make here is that God is not the great fault finder, but the friend of sinners. What do, you, what do you think of when you think about David? I know what I think of. I think about his sin with Bathsheba. But over in the book of First Chronicles, and I forget the exact address, you can look it up. God summarizes the life of David. He talks about David being a man after his own heart. He said, he's a, he said he did, he, in every way, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you can read it, in every way he served me, save only in the matter of, of the wife of Uriah. You know what that great sin was in David's life to God? It was a footnote. For us, it's the great billboard of David's life, isn't it? I'm so sorry that I'm that way. I'm so sorry that as humans, that's how we are. Sometimes we elevate, we, we exalt the sordid and the sinful when God is not Listen, it was wrong. It was a sin and it caused him great problems. But that was not the summation of David's life. David's life was summed up by God as one of faithfulness, except in some areas here. God is, I'm not saying God excuses sin in any way. He doesn't wink at sin. Jesus had to die for sin. But those that he died for, who have been born of his spirit, now who are trying to serve him, God is not the great fault finder nitpicking everything we do. He's the friend of sinners. And we're told in Proverbs 18, 24, there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Isaiah 41 and verse 10 He's telling the Israelites there, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I want to I leave you with this. See, this is all about this book of Job certainly is about suffering. Ultimately, as we've said already, it's really about our view of God, but but it teaches us some things about our, our brothers and sisters that are suffering. How do we deal with them? Certainly not like Eliphaz and the other friends. There's a song out there in the contemporary Christian world by Casting Crowns. It's called Love Them Like Jesus. Love Them Like Jesus. And I want to leave you with this because I thought it pretty much summed up how we ought to be approaching people like Job who are in need of pity. And listen to these words. The love of her life is drifting away. They're losing the fight for another day. The life that she's known as falling apart, a fatherless home, a child's broken heart. You're holding her hand. You're straining for words. You're trying to make sense of it all. She's desperate for hope. Darkness clouding her view. She's looking to you. 
She's looking to you. And here's what we do. Just love her like Jesus. Carry her to him. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You don't need the answers to all of life's questions. Just know that he loves her. Stay by her side and love her like Jesus. Second verse, the gifts lie in wait in a room painted blue. A little blessing from heaven will be there soon. Hope fades in the night. Blue skies turn gray as the little one slips away. You're holding their hand. You're straining for words. You're trying to make sense of it all. They're desperate for hope. Darkness clouding their view. They're looking to you. Just love them like Jesus. Carry them to him. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You don't need the answers to all of life's questions. Just know that he loves them. Stay by their side. And love them like Jesus. What do we do when our brothers and sisters are in desperate need of comfort? We don't have the answers. We, we, go, we know truths from God's word. Sometimes... That's not what they need. They just need you and I to love them like Jesus. You know what we're told that he does? He makes intercession for us at the throne room of God. We're told that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. There have been times I could not pray. I could not form the words to pray. All I could do is groan in my spirit. You know what happened? Those groanings that cannot be uttered by us were taken before the throne of grace. Love them like Jesus. You know how Jesus loved us? Enough to die for us. And enough to always be with us. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.